You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you all so much for carving out the time to join me for this week's episode, episode 31, Recovering from Criticism as a Highly Sensitive Person. High sensitivity is a topic that I am so passionate about, and so I'm so glad that you joined me. I can't wait to share this episode with you, but before I launch in, wanted to draw your attention to a few resources. The first is a free four-part video series on building resilience, and the second is a free workbook that is intended to help you uncover perfectionistic tendencies in different domains of your life. So if you haven't had the chance to take a look at those resources, I definitely encourage you to check them out and I'll include links in the episode notes. I also wanted to share that I only have two more coaching spots left for the rest of 2021 so I won't be taking on any more than two more clients before the end of this year and many of the clients in that program identify as highly sensitive and high sensitivity is something that I commonly address in this program and I think many people who identify as highly sensitive are drawn to this program in particular because of its holistic nature and because it blends wisdom from eastern and western healing modalities in a way that is truly curated it's really catered to meet your unique needs and addressing any areas of your life that feel out of alignment or that are keeping you stuck whether it be intense self-criticism or perfectionism perhaps stress overwhelm work-life imbalance difficulties in parenting or romantic relationships even anxiety and self-doubt and so while there really truly are a multitude of tools and strategies and practices that can address some of these concerns in people with high sensitivity, there often is a need to thoughtfully implement these practices in ways that consider what high sensitivity means, what high sensitivity looks like from person to person. And this program is therefore an opportunity to get creative and figure out what is sustainable, what truly works, what helps you thrive. So if this program sounds interesting to you and like a helpful way to support you in navigating high sensitivity in your life or even addressing another concern other than high sensitivity, I encourage you to check out my website, melissafoynes.com to learn more. You're also welcome to email me through hello at melissafoynes.com. I'm happy to schedule a time to talk and connect further to see if you think it might be a good match and you're interested in applying. With all of that being said, let's transition into the topic for today. In today's episode, I'm going to start off by describing some background about what high sensitivity is, including some key research that I think is really important to understanding the essence of high sensitivity. 
I'll then transition into talking a bit about how cultural values, families of origin, life experiences, and interactions with close others can really shape our perception of sensitivity, particularly high sensitivity, throughout our lifespans. I'll also talk about how internalized judgment is one of the biggest enemies of high sensitivity and how we can work towards reframing our definitions and understanding of high sensitivity. And then I'll conclude by talking about some key ways that we can practice recovering from criticism and invalidation as highly sensitive people in ways that embody resilience. If you've heard me speak on this topic of high sensitivity before, you likely know that I truly view emotional sensitivity as a superpower, a strength that can really change the world. I don't think it's a liability or a problem that needs to be solved. That being said, many of us who identify as highly sensitive do often need to take some time to learn how to work with our sensitivity and structure our lives and our lifestyles in ways that really support our sensitivity because we don't necessarily live in a world that caters to or reveres sensitivity. Of course, that's very context dependent, but many of us exist in personal, professional, cultural spheres where high sensitivity is not highly regarded. In fact, it's often judged and demeaned and criticized. Many of us need to therefore learn as adults how to care for our sensitivity and to really thrive in the world because it wasn't something that was necessarily taught to us as children or adolescents. While there have been many, many people who have really dedicated themselves to researching and understanding high sensitivity and figuring out how collectively and individually we can support people who identify as highly sensitive, one of the leaders in high sensitivity research has been Dr. Elaine Aaron. And she describes high sensitivity, or it is also referred to sometimes as sensory processing sensitivity, is a temperament trait. And this temperament trait allows the nervous system and brain to process subtleties and details that many other people who do not identify as highly sensitive miss. And although it is evolutionarily adaptive, this trait, because it allows for more thorough processing and therefore increased responsiveness to both environmental and social stimuli, Without fully understanding and appreciating what high sensitivity is, people are often not able to access the tools and strategies that can bring them balance and allow them to thrive. And so they're often left feeling overwhelmed and overstimulated given our modern world in which there are really high amounts of stimuli to process around us at all times. High sensitivity operates on a spectrum. So there are people who are low in high sensitivity and high in high sensitivity. And there is also a lot of variability within high sensitivity. So a group of people who identifies as highly sensitive is likely going to 
look very different. Each individual person is not going to have the same sensitivities to the same kinds of stimulation. And because no one person's experience is the same, Dr. Aaron has identified through her research four basic characteristics of the highly sensitive person. And she refers to this as the DOES model, D-O-E-S, which stands for depth of processing, overstimulation, emotional responsiveness and empathy, and sensitivity to subtleties. And I'll talk a little bit about each of these. Highly sensitive people, or HSPs, tend to demonstrate a deeper processing relative to non-HSPs. And this applies both to the environment and social stimulation that is external, as well as internal stimuli, like thoughts, emotions, dreams, and memories. So for someone who is processing both external and internal stimulation more deeply, that often leads to a deeper reflective capacity, more thoughtfulness and conscientiousness. It might also lead to more cautiousness, thinking about all of the possible effects of an action or an idea. It might also involve more time spent in making decisions. People who process things more deeply often tend to be more intuitive because they're integrating so many different types of information from different sources as they are interacting with the world. They might consider existential issues, the meaning of life more deeply, and they might be really good problem solvers because they look at all of the different facets of a problem, all of the different ways there could be solutions to the problem, and often are really good at detail-oriented work, being really effective and efficient at spotting and avoiding errors. And because of this depth of processing, many HSPs are able to learn without necessarily realizing that they're learning because they're taking in all this information and integrating it so thoroughly. And they can also work in both unconscious and semi-conscious ways because of the multiple layers to their processing. And that's another reason why they tend to be quite intuitive. HSPs often struggle with overstimulation. So they can feel very exhausted and worn down by stimulation that even is pretty routine and familiar or moderate. So they it doesn't have to be new or intense to wear HSPs down. And HSPs can be overstimulated in different ways or they might struggle with overstimulation in one particular area. So for example, they might really struggle with feeling overstimulated by noises in general or loud noises or certain noises but not necessarily feel so overstimulated visually. Other people might notice several different categories of stimulation that tend to be quite activating. I think it's also important to keep in mind that because of the modern world in which we live, many of us who are HSPs have actually become habituated to overstimulation to the point that we don't even realize that we are overstimulated. So we don't necessarily connect the dots and realize that one of the reasons that we're so exhausted at the end of the day is this overstimulation that has contributed. And one example that I can share is last year I did a silent retreat 
a silent meditation retreat online in the midst of COVID. And I remember one of the first times I drove after being in this meditation retreat and I felt so overwhelmed and my nervous system felt so activated just by the noises of cars driving down the street. So I was in my car, the windows were down and I just noticed my heart starting to race and just feeling on edge. And I realized it was because the noise level felt so intense. And I had this epiphany that perhaps those noises are actually affecting my nervous system like that all the time. But I've become so habituated to those noises and potentially having my nervous system operating at that level of activation that I hadn't quite realized it. And so part of thriving as an HSP, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, is learning to really tune into your nervous system and understanding what kinds of stimulation can really exhaust and deplete you so that you can feel empowered to then address it and take care of yourself in the ways that you need and deserve. The next characteristic of HSPs is emotional responsiveness and empathy. So many HSPs experience emotions more intensely than other people. They might notice that intense emotions stick around longer than what they observe in others. They might take longer to recover from something really painful or difficult. They might also feel very affected by other people's moods. Again, if you imagine someone really taking in all of the nuances of a situation, body language, tone of voice, facial expressions, pauses in speech, how someone is or isn't gesticulating, that can lead to a lot of absorption of someone else's mood even if they aren't necessarily expressing their internal mood state because HSPs are picking up on other cues that are associated with mood or indicative of mood that other people maybe aren't picking up on. Which brings us to the fourth characteristic which is sensitivity to subtleties. So HSPs really picking up on a lot of the subtleties that others don't notice. And this is something that can also be observed in children. So if you are a parent or you're connected with a child who is an HSP, you might notice that they often pick up on some of these subtle cues and signs about how what kind of mood their teacher is in or they might report that their feelings were hurt in response to something that one of their friends did or said and other children or even adults don't quite understand how that child experienced such a deep level of hurt because they're not picking up on things like the tone of voice that the child used when they said the thing that they said or their body language, etc. So this is definitely something that can also get in the way of HSPs feeling validated and understood for their experiences. Something that I think is important to keep in mind about sensitivity to subtleties is that This characteristic isn't attributed to more acute 
sensory organs. It's actually because of how sensory input gets filtered and then subsequently processed in the brain. So HSPs actually have a different nervous system than non-HSPs and we'll talk about some of the biological differences in a moment. So because of the sensitivity to subtleties, HSPs might notice that they're more affected by stimulants or sugar even than non-HSPs or they're more sensitive to things in the air that don't bother other people that result in coughing or rashes or allergic reactions. So there is something biological that contributes to this subtlety and sensitivity as well. Another important piece to keep in mind is that we have more than five senses. So historically, we think about touch, taste, vision, hearing, and smell. Yet there is actually quite a bit of controversy about how many senses we actually have. Some people say 21, 33, 53. The actual number isn't so important, but when we're considering how to thrive as HSPs and how to support HSPs in our lives, I think it's important to embrace that there really is a lot of sensory input coming in to someone's nervous system. So the five that I just mentioned, vision, hearing, smell, taste, and touch, plus balance, plus movement, plus temperature, plus proprioception, which is awareness of our body in space, interoception, which is awareness and recognition of internal sensations, and pain. So again, that's not 53, that's about 9 or 10, but if we expand beyond thinking about these five senses, it's it helps with our understanding and validation of what it is like to be an HSP because there are so many different channels from which HSPs and all of us really are deriving information about our internal experience and the environment. But this is going to be much more overwhelming for HSPs because of all of the reasons we just said, the depth of processing, the overstimulation, the emotional responsiveness and empathy and the sensitivity to subtleties. High sensitivity, interestingly, is also a trait that's observed across species, so not just in humans, and the prevalence of high sensitivity is pretty consistent across species, so ranges between 15 and 20%. I want to talk a little bit about some of the biological brain differences to help really emphasize this point that there are some real biological underpinnings to some of these aspects of this trait. So Research shows that the brain processes information in more areas in HSPs relative to non-HSPs. So in HSPs, it's about 10 to 20 brain areas that are involved in processing, and in non-HSPs, it's about four to five. There's also research that shows that HSP brains respond to dopamine differently that their mirror neurons are more active and mirror neurons are the neurons that help us generate empathy that often allow us to mirror the behavior of others in ways that aren't necessarily conscious. So if you have ever observed this in yourself, you might notice that you sort of take on the posture of someone that you are sitting with without necessarily realizing it and that is because of our mirror neurons. HSPs also tend to experience emotions more vividly and intensely than others and 
this more intense experiencing has been correlated with increased activation in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. There's also some research that shows that brain activation in regions related to awareness, action planning, empathy, and self-other processing. So examples would be wondering what other people think about you, wondering about if other people accept you, how they view you. Those regions in the brain are increased. The activation in those regions is increased in HSPs. Of course, being tuned into social context can be a really important strength and powerful asset. And research shows that it's only when people aren't well-skilled in regulating their emotions that this increased capacity in terms of attunement to social context can lead to increased anxiety and stress. So another reason why as HSPs, as support people to HSPs, it's really important to understand how the nervous system operates and ways that we can support emotion regulation. There's also some research that shows that HSPs have a more activated amygdala. So the amygdala is the part of the limbic system that gets activated when a threat is perceived so that the sympathetic nervous system, the fight, flight, freeze, fawn response can be mobilized. So what this means is that while HSPs are not necessarily chronically activated, they do spend much more time in a stress response than others because of this increased amygdala activation. And it's actually an automatic process that you may not even be conscious of. And it's not a process that operates according to thought or logic. And that's one reason why people oversimplify these processes and systems for the sake of conversation and explanation and we'll call the limbic system or the amygdala part of the emotional brain because it's the more primitive part of our system that doesn't integrate logic or reason or decision making whereas the more logical thinking part of our brain is often referred to as the cognitive brain so because the limbic system the amygdala is part of this more primal aspect of our brain it can get activated regardless of how quote-unquote real the danger is so when there is real legitimate danger or threat present we absolutely want the limbic system and the amygdala to be activated. However, if this system is overactive on a regular basis or responds in ways that aren't proportionate to the objective level of threat that's present in a situation, it can really lead to a lot of exhaustion and physical health problems as well. So this research to me really highlights the importance for HSPs to not only lessen daily stress so they can more successfully activate the more cognitive part of their brain and engage the parasympathetic nervous system, which helps put the brakes on the stress response. So you may have heard that referred to as the rest and digest system or the tend and befriend system. 
But also it's important to help HSPs learn to recognize when that limbic system is activated so they can intervene earlier in the process and potentially bypass some of the negative effects of this more chronic or regular activation. As I mentioned earlier, our current modern world doesn't necessarily cater to high sensitivity. It's fast paced, there's a lot of stimulation, we are often encouraged to be on the go and work ourselves into a grind. That aspect or those aspects of our culture combined with the fact that there are relatively speaking way more non-HSPs in the world than HSPs it can be very easy to see yourself as different in a way that feels bad so it's really common for HSPs to experience a lot of self-judgment about some of what they perceive to be weaknesses or flaws rather than strengths and superpowers and assets and advantages and to also experience a lot of shame when they see themselves having different kinds of self-care needs or trying to fit themselves into the model of how other people structure their lives and realize that it isn't quite a fit. And that self-judgment is often magnified and compounded by the judgment that HSPs face from other people. So I want to take just a few minutes to talk about some of the research which shows the strengths and high sensitivity just as an attempt in some small way to counteract this narrative about high sensitivity as a problem. And then I also want to highlight some other sources of potential judgment that HSPs face because I do think that internalization of judgment about high sensitivity is one of the biggest challenges that HSPs face and the more aware we can be of the sources of judgment that have contributed to self-judgment, the more equipped we are to then address and tackle it. I also think it can be really powerful to become more aware of the multitude of influences that contribute to judgment of high sensitivity, whether it's our own high sensitivity or high sensitivity in others. Because if we do notice that judgment, we can take a more self-compassionate stance towards ourselves, that it's not entirely our fault that we judge this trait, that there are existing systemic factors that have reinforced these narratives about high sensitivity. This negative bias towards high sensitivity is actually quite apparent in even psychological research. So for many years, psychological research on high sensitivity in the United States was very focused on investigating the negative implications of high sensitivity on mental health and well-being. And fortunately, that is turning around and the field is gradually starting to recognize some of the positive benefits of high sensitivity. But as you can imagine, when research is biased in a certain way, that trickles down. It affects how we perceive ourselves. It affects how professionals and various disciplines conceptualize certain traits, work with certain people. So it really is profound that this bias has been present and also really important that it is shifting. So one area of research on HSPs that I think is really exciting is neuroplasticity. So 
there is research that shows that HSPs have more neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the ability of our brain to form and reorganize synaptic connections. So essentially to retrain itself, to relearn new habits. That is something that is made possible by neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity in HSPs or higher neuroplasticity in HSPs is something that allows certain attributes to get expressed. So enhanced creativity, empathy, awareness, and openness. There's research that that neuroplasticity allows some of those traits to be expressed. There's also some research that shows that while highly sensitive individuals who might grow up in a negative environment may be predisposed to certain health and psychological symptoms like heightened pain, severe depression, and anxiety, when HSPs are in a positive, nurturing, calm environment, they report greater life satisfaction and relationship quality as adults and traits that are often associated with high sensitivity like good listening, greater capacity to love, deeper empathy, more intense creativity, and refined aesthetic sensibilities, those positive qualities that are associated with high sensitivity tend to be expressed to a greater degree. So it's not that high sensitivity in and of itself is something that is associated with negative outcomes. It's really about the environment and how well the environment supports the person. So again, I think this is another call to action for us as a collective community to enhance the ways in which we support HSPs and also as HSPs ourselves a call to action in really embracing that there are certain ways that we can support ourselves so that we can thrive. Another piece I want to mention is that I have been talking about this cultural bias in the U.S., but that doesn't mean that other places haven't historically appreciated high sensitivity more than is the case or has been the case in the U.S. So for example, Japan, Sweden, and China are a few of the countries that have been identified as having a more positive attitude towards high sensitivity. And Dr. Aaron has also highlighted some research that shows that in China, kids who are described as sensitive or shy are often chosen as friends and playmates more frequently. Whereas in Canada, those children who are described with those same labels are less likely to be chosen. And interestingly, in Mandarin, the word shy is often translated or um, conceptualized as meaning good or well-behaved and sensitive as having understanding. So both shy and sensitive are viewed as forms of praise. Whereas in the United States, often words like shy and introverted and inhibited take on a bit of a negative tone and connotation. And sometimes HSPs are mislabeled in those ways, which is unfortunate from the perspective of those being associated with negative traits, but also because they don't actually accurately describe the essence of this trait. So I share this research and some of these cultural differences because it's not the case that everyone who is highly sensitive is going to be met with a lot of judgment. It really depends on all of these different factors. And I also wanted to share how even 
well-meaning individuals can contribute to some of the invalidation and judgment that HSPs face. So one personal example that I will share is that I have very clear memories of being in the fourth grade and I had a teacher who I adored and who I think also adored me. And I was a crier. I've always been a crier. I I am an HSP. I just, that is one way that I experience emotion. And it can be anger. It can be hurt. It's, it's just that's how my nervous system responds and releases. But of course, I didn't really know that about myself when I was in fourth grade. All I knew is that I... I cried a lot. And so this teacher, I think in a well-intentioned, heartfelt attempt to really help me, would give me small gifts if I made it through each day without crying. So if I made it through the day and didn't cry, he would give me this small token, this small gift. And at the time, I don't I don't have any conscious awareness of feeling as though that was unhelpful or hurtful but it it was many years later that I realized oh wow that experience from someone who really loved me and I I think was well-intentioned I do I do really think that he was really solidified in my mind that crying was not okay that I needed to contain this aspect of myself. I needed to suppress it. I needed to work really hard to not let it out because that was a bad thing. And that experience really shaped not just my view of crying and emotional expression, but my view of myself, of something being wrong with me. And later in life, when I started to realize how much judgment I had about myself because of my sensitivity and how much I was wishing that it weren't the case and frustrated with myself. I came to realize that a lot of that negative self-talk and internal dialogue was actually because of not just this experience in fourth grade, but many experiences like it, rather than coming from this true sort of inner wisdom. So I have had to do a lot of work in my life to really reshape some of these narratives and decondition some of the ways in which I have been taught to think about my own sensitivity. Another example of influences that can really contribute to judgment about high sensitivity is our families of origin. So like my teacher, many family members who judge sensitivity or end up invalidating those of us who are highly sensitive are often doing the best that they can. They may not know how to validate us, they might not realize how important it is to validate us, or they might be afraid that if they validate our emotions that we'll get more emotional rather than less. Maybe they're under high stress or time pressure or they don't have very many emotional or financial resources ourselves. So often when I think about growing up in family systems that didn't support high sensitivity or know how to interact with it, I think about it as a poor fit, a poor fit between our temperament and their tendencies and awareness. So Marsha Linehan, who's a psychologist that I admire so deeply and who is the founder or creator of a therapy called Dialectical Behavior Therapy, she often refers to this as being a tulip in a rose garden. So it's not like the tulip is better than the rose or vice versa, but it's just, it's a poor match. 
And so when people don't understand us or don't know how to interact with us, that can lead to a lot of responses that are unintentionally harmful. So we might get the impression that our emotions are wrong, bad, strange, not valid, or maybe they're ignored and people don't come to our aid when we are having an emotional reaction. Or maybe they'll explicitly say things that they don't intend to be harmful, like, oh, you don't have to cry. There's no reason to cry. Um, Or maybe they say things that are explicitly very hurtful and and maybe in some family systems they are trying to be hurtful like quit your blubbering don't be such a baby normal people don't get this upset so all sorts of messages about don't be so sensitive you're overreacting why are you acting this way which of course can be really upsetting to someone who doesn't necessarily understand why they're having the emotional experience that they're having that they too are feeling overwhelmed by it and actually potentially don't feel like they can control it. So when that happens, we do walk away with lots of messages about our high sensitivity as well as a lack of opportunity to really know how to work with high sensitivity. We might also grow up in family systems with caregivers who are highly sensitive and perhaps we saw them struggle. So we don't want to be like them. We identify with them with this similar trait, but we don't want to struggle in the same way. So we avoid it or suppress it, or maybe we associate high sensitivity with certain behaviors that aren't necessarily indicative of high sensitivity, but are more of a function of an overwhelmed nervous system or not knowing how to care for high sensitivity in a way that leads to thriving. So when we are overloaded, when we are overwhelmed, we might get irritable and snap at someone. We might withdraw and retreat. And so we might have seen those behaviors in our caregivers and think that that's what it means to be highly sensitive when that isn't necessarily high sensitivity. It's more of a reflection of the overwhelm and the overstimulation. And so that can lead to just a really big shame spiral and and dark hole. And Julie Bajeland, who's another really skilled HSP therapist who's done a lot of research and work on high sensitivity, she calls this the HSP hole. So it can be a place where we feel really terrible. So I hope some of these examples really emphasize and highlight to you how judgment is one of the biggest enemies of high sensitivity and the judgment that we might internalize from other people about ourselves also falls into that category because when we judge our sensitivity as wrong bad shameful weird we don't care for it like a superpower and we also often suppress it in a way that deprives us of the opportunity to really benefit from its gifts and that also puts us out of balance and then further adds to the judgment we might feel and reinforce that high sensitivity is not helpful. It causes other problems. Another reason that this kind of judgment can be so harmful is that it makes us less resilient in the face of criticism of others. We need to have compassion toward ourselves in order to buffer 
the effects of other people's criticisms. Again, we don't necessarily all live in a world that caters to and reveres and celebrates high sensitivity. And so we will likely be met with criticism or judgment or both at one point or another if we haven't already. So in my mind, practicing a more non-judgmental and compassionate stance towards high sensitivity is important from the perspective of reconditioning what we've been taught to believe about high sensitivity and peeling back the layers of some of these messages we've received from culture and families and other people. But it's also important because there are times in life when high sensitivity might not serve us when our intuition is off or we feel like it's taking a lot of work to restructure our work schedule in a system that doesn't necessarily allow for the kind of flexible work schedule that really supports high sensitivity and thriving as an HSP. So we're often going against the grain and that can be challenging. We often can put ourselves out there in sharing about our high sensitivity in ways that is a risk. We don't know always how other people are going to respond. So I think when we can view high sensitivity in a more non-judgmental and self-compassionate way, when there is a struggle, it helps us feel less ashamed in response to that struggle. So viewing high sensitivity in a more non-judgmental way isn't about categorically perceiving it as positive. It's about being able to live in this complicated space of recognizing that there are really incredible ways in which high sensitivity serves us and other people that are incredibly awesome. And yet there are some aspects of high sensitivity that can be challenging. So the non-judgmental stance is about being able to observe high sensitivity as it is, appreciating the reality of what is happening in a given moment. I think on the flip side, as we've been talking about, if we view high sensitivity as categorically negative, then that can lead us to also suppress or deny it and really try to be someone that we're not, try to really be more like a non-HSP, which ultimately isn't going to work and will probably lead to more burnout and unhappiness. So how do we arrive at a more non-judgmental, compassionate stance? And how do we reframe some of these harmful narratives about high sensitivity given all of the factors that contribute to these narratives? So I'm gonna offer a few ideas here. And the reason that I'm spending so much time here is that I think it is a helpful foundation for recovering from validation, excuse me, invalidation or criticism from other people when we do a lot of work in cultivating this non-judgmental, compassionate stance within ourselves, it can help provide a buffer to invalidation and criticism from others. So one idea is to really reflect on times in your life that your high sensitivity really served you or other people and really embodying the truth of that experience. So really connecting to your sensory experience of it, visually, tactily, in terms of sounds that were there, but really just connecting with your memory of those times. And for many people that I work with, it helps them to have a list, like a list of when my high sensitivity has been a superpower or when it's really served me. But that list that you can go back to when you are feeling 
down or negative about high sensitivity. You can also look for examples of people with the trait of high sensitivity that you respect and admire and use that as a source of inspiration in terms of quotes, things that they've said, in terms of pictures of them. If you're someone who really likes lists, you could even have a list of badass people who inspire you who have high sensitivity and why they inspire you so that you can reflect back on that. One experience that I can really remember that has really stuck with me is during one of my meditation retreats, someone was giving a talk and started to cry. And I, and then I started to cry. (laughs) And the reason that that was so powerful for me was because that was actually the first time in my life that I had seen someone in a professional kind of setting show that level of vulnerability. And of course, it helped me feel closer and more connected to them as a fellow human being, but it also really inspired me that this was something, as you know, that I had been taught to contain and suppress and really hide from the public eye. And here was someone who was allowing their sensitivity to blossom and show itself in a way that didn't detract from the work that they were doing. And of course, there are circumstances in which we do contain certain emotions for various reasons. So I'm not saying that everyone needs to be raw and letting it all hang out in all circumstances all the time. But I think for me, it just gave me some additional permission that I didn't even know that I needed because I had come so far in my journey of reshaping my own inner narrative about my own high sensitivity that just really was so liberating. So that's an experience that I still reflect on to this day. And so I encourage you to look for other examples of people in your life who embrace their sensitivity and channel it, work with it in ways that you really admire and even surround yourself with people. There are so many wonderful groups and circles now of highly sensitive people coming together and supporting one another. And I think being around other people who can appreciate and understand on some level what it is like to live in the world in your skin can be another hugely powerful way to counteract judgment and reshape some of these narratives. I think it's also important to be really aware of the language that you use to talk about yourself to others and the way that you talk about other people who are highly sensitive. So really monitoring your inner self-talk. Maybe you're not necessarily saying some of these judgments aloud or judgments towards other people aloud, but oftentimes there are subtleties or not so subtleties in our language that affect how we perceive high sensitivity. The language that we use results in certain physiological changes in our body and our emotions. And so being really mindful of our language, I think is another important piece of this practice. Another way to work on judgment about high sensitivity is in relationship to others. So oftentimes other people will react strongly to our sensitivity. They'll say, why are you being so sensitive? Or your sensitivity is such a problem. And and make these comments that are not only really hurtful, but add to the judgment that we can internalize about high sensitivity. And so rather than just 
absorbing that and taking it at face of value, meeting those kinds of comments with some curiosity, asking questions like, what part of my sensitivity is causing distress for you right now? Or can you say a bit more about what exactly is bothering you about my response? So really trying to dig deeper and get clarity about some of the nuances that can come up in relationship conflict. Another piece is really trying to mindfully unpack some of the fears about high sensitivity that might be perpetuating some of this judgment. So, so often when we are highly sensitive, we are concerned about being judged or as I mentioned earlier, being like a caregiver or a parent who is highly sensitive. And so sometimes when we unpack those fears a bit more and dig deeper to identify what kind of anxiety might be feeding into this judgment, we can then help soften the judgment. And I think also being really aware of the science on high sensitivity can be really powerful. And that's one reason why I spent so much time at the beginning of the episode really sharing some of that with you because really grounding yourself in the research, which again, had been biased for a long time and maybe in still some circles it is, but being able to really appreciate the truth of what is powerful about high sensitivity from a scientific perspective can also be really valuable. I also think this is so much easier said than done and of course deserves much more time than I'm going to give it right now, but more radically accepting yourself fully in mind, body, and spirit, that this is how you are. This is how you were born into the world. This is how your nervous system operates rather than trying to wish it away or wish it to be different than it actually is. And then one final tip or two final tips I'll share is when you are struggling with a non-judgmental stance towards high sensitivity, calling on your highest self, your wisest self, your future self, or some kind of symbol of compassion in your life, whether it be a living person, alive or dead, whether it be um, some kind of deity or spiritual figure that represents compassion to you or historical figure to help you harness that compassion and you can picture or visualize that person again you could have images of that that person or being around you um, but calling in additional supports when you need it and really treating your high sensitivity as a superpower even if you don't feel like it is so almost imagining how a singer would take really good care of their voice or an athlete would take really good care of their body, seeing your sensitivity as one of your life's instruments and figuring out what would I do differently in my life if I treated this truly as a superpower? Would I restructure my work schedule? Would I create certain boundaries? Would I integrate sensory breaks? These are some things we'll be talking about in more detail in the next episode if you're interested. Um, But figuring out what you would do differently and then do that. Because so often our cognitions or our stories and narratives about high sensitivity come later. And the behavioral changes that embody a different narrative or that represent thinking about high sensitivity in another way need to precede some of those cognitive thought shifts. So before we close, I want to conclude by talking a little bit about recovering from invalidation or criticism as an HSP. So invalidation and criticism, while painful, 
is not always bad, right? If you think about it, invalidation and criticism can be helpful when you're actually wrong. When you actually are factually wrong about something or you've made a mistake, it can also help you broaden your perspective. It can awaken you to something you hadn't previously been aware of. It can also stimulate intellectual and personal growth. Now, of course, it matters how it's delivered, but at its best, those are ways in which invalidation and criticism can really serve us. However, invalidation and criticism can be unhelpful when we are disbelieved when we're being honest, when our private inner experiences are trivialized or demonized, when we are minimized, ignored, when we're misinterpreted or chronically misunderstood, or perhaps we're receiving unequal, unfair, disparate treatment, or important truth or facts about ourselves and our lives are denied. So those are times where it can not only be unhelpful, but extremely harmful. So I have six tips for recovering from invalidation or criticism. And the first is to acknowledge, validate, and feel your feelings. So when you are met with negative feedback, especially as an HSP who has potentially received a lot of negative feedback about your feelings and emotional expression and sensitivity in your life, it can be very tempting to pretend like it doesn't actually bother you as much as it does. Especially if people around you are saying things like, oh, don't let them get to you so much or don't let them win, don't let them control you. The reality is that negative feedback often hurts even when it's delivered in a loving way and or even when it's true. So the more you can allow, name, acknowledge, and actually make space to feel the true depth and breadth of your feelings, the more you can fully honor yourself and recover from that experience of criticism. And so for HSPs, this might mean taking some time alone to allow your brain to fully process what has happened, potentially with minimal stimulation, lying on the floor with a weighted blanket, with a covering over your eyes, lights out in the dark. And it also might involve taking your time with really understanding what you are feeling. Maybe because you are taking in so much context and information, you're not actually sure what you're feeling. You know it doesn't feel good, but accessing nuances and subtleties of language and words that aptly describe your experience might be really challenging. So really taking the time that it takes to acknowledge, be with your feelings, feel them, and validate them. And by validate, I mean treating them as making sense given what happened, given your nervous system, given your historical experiences as an HSP and how this particular experience might have unearthed some wounds from the past. So really thinking about ways that you can express to yourself that those feelings make sense given one of those things, given being a human being, given being an HSP, given the nervous system that you have, given the life experiences and memories that you have and and really showing yourself compassion in that way. The second tip is to really attend to and nourish your nervous system. Again, this is another piece that we'll be talking more about in the next episode. But the reason I highlight it here is that hearing criticism can feel very threatening. It can feel like an attack. And in that way, given the heightened amygdala activation I was mentioning earlier, HSPs are prone to be 
sent into that fight, flight, freeze, fawn mode when we are told about something that makes us different or that's imperfect about us or a mistake that we made. And so it's important to be able to regulate our nervous system so that we can think clearly about what happened and then figure out how to proceed and potentially access empathy towards the other person if that's relevant. So again, I'll go into more details about some strategies in the next episode, but I wanted to share a few here. So one is to engage in some kind of breathing practice because breathing practices are a very helpful way to engage the parasympathetic nervous system, the part of the nervous system which slows down the stress response. So one is a paced breathing exercise. And I'm actually going to post an Instagram live later about both of these breathing exercises for people who aren't familiar with them. So you can access that later. But one is paced breathing, which essentially means inhaling and exhaling to certain counts. And oftentimes when we can get to a breath rate of five to six breaths per minute, that is what is required to engage the parasympathetic nervous system. So oftentimes that might be inhaling for a count of two, exhaling for a count of four, essentially trying to double the exhalation relative to the inhale because the exhalation is what is most important. The lengthening of the exhalation is what is most important in activating that aspect of the nervous system that slows things down. Another breath practice that I really love for HSPs is bees breath or Brahmari breath, pranayam in Sanskrit, for a couple of different reasons. There is a way that you can use your fingers to decrease external stimulation and it also involves a bit of an inner hum which is a form of vagal toning which is really nourishing to the nervous system so again that's something that I will demonstrate on video for you later you can also do things like shake out your hands or feet and allow natural processes like yawning shivering crying screaming to unfold you might also find that movement helps so walking running sprinting jumping up and down primal sounds swimming so something that really helps you soothe your nervous system so for some people more sedentary activities are more helpful like lying on the ground and feeling the supports beneath you but for other people some kind of rhythmic movement or something that involves pressure against the joints and tension of the muscles can be really helpful You can also do things like place one hand on your belly, one hand on your chest, or giving yourself a hug, creating that gentle pressure that can feel really containing. You can also really firmly press your feet into the ground and take a few slow deep breaths into your belly. You can gaze around the room and notice the colors, textures, shadows, areas of lightness and dark patterns, or even calling to mind the image of someone that you really love that you find soothing and really picturing them in your mind's eye. So step two, attending to and nourishing your nervous system. Step three, non-defensively checking the facts, using your sensitivity as an advantage. So as you notice, this is coming as step three. So first we are acknowledging, validating, and feeling our feelings. Then we are attending to and nourishing our nervous system. And only then are we non-defensively checking the facts because we are most likely able to do that in a more effective and skillful way once we have validated our feelings and also nourished our nervous system. So the first two parts are really essential and important to not skip over. So 
one piece of being a high sensitive person that is really relevant is that there is a deep processing of decisions before talking or acting. And so that is something that can be used to your advantage when you are non-defensively checking the facts of a situation. Your brain can take in the criticism itself as well as the larger context in which the criticism is occurring, the person who's giving it, the nonverbal cues and feedback, and all of that processing, all of those details that are being integrated is something that can allow you to ask yourself, is there any kernel of truth to this criticism? Is there a situation like this that I've been in before and can I source from that prior life experience to help me ascertain what might work in this situation and what might not work? You can also consider who is giving you the negative feedback? Is this someone who really shares similar values and beliefs? Is this someone that has your best interest in mind? Are they credible and trustworthy? How much does their opinion and evaluation of you really matter? So those are really important factors to consider. You might also take an honest look at your own behavior. Is there anything that you did or said or that you didn't do or say that wasn't quite in alignment with the current situation, wasn't quite in proportion to the current situation. So perhaps your emotional reaction or response makes sense given your history with this person, but not in terms of what just transpired in the present moment. As an HSP, you can really use your attunement to the complexities and nuances of the context to really aid you in this fact-checking process. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that as an HSP, this could be potentially an exhausting and time-consuming process. And so it's important to make sure you are caring for your nervous system throughout this process, taking breaks, taking some time to ground and regulate your emotions, and perhaps even giving yourself time to talk through the situation with someone that you trust, like a friend or therapist or coach, and maybe even writing down your reflections in a journal to help you further process. So once you've reflected on the facts of the situation, whether there is any kernel of truth or utility to the feedback that's been given, what you might want to take away from the situation and apply in the future, what your own contributions to the interaction might have been, another key piece is to work to depersonalize anything that isn't yours to own. So oftentimes when people judge us or criticize us, it's often a projection of their own fears, insecurities, and self-judgments. Sometimes we do contribute to people's judgments. We do do things that cause them harm. But other times we evoke strong feelings in other people because we've unintentionally shown a light on something about themselves. They'd rather not see and they might react with defensiveness and hostility without pausing to reflect on the root cause of their feelings so just because it feels personal doesn't mean that it is sometimes these interactions are more about what has been activated in other people rather than something that we have or haven't done so as an hsp with greater empathy and emotional attunement, you also have a deep capacity to bring to this table a recognition that we are all human and that when we're hurt, we often hurt other people. So that definitely doesn't excuse invalidation or harmful criticism or make it okay, 
but it can help you see that this may not be about you. And those more active mirror neurons in your brain that at times might feel like a burden in this kind of circumstance might help you sense into what the other person might be feeling. And when you can couple that empathy with the other emotions that you're feeling, you can see more layers of what is happening. So you can really put yourself in the other person's shoes and ask yourself, you know, what might be going on for this other person? Is there something that they need. Again, that doesn't mean that you need to provide it or that understanding the context from which they are coming means that you're not entitled to your own feelings of hurt and distress, but sometimes really being able to take a step back and see the whole picture can really help us take things less personally and can soften the hurt that we feel. It can also provide us with more clarity about what to do next and potentially provide the basis for a more meaningful conversation with the person who's given you some kind of criticism or invalidated you in some kind of way. It might better equip you to have a productive conversation with them about why that didn't work for you to hear that criticism in that way or why you don't think that criticism was fair or why you see their point and you now have an opportunity to own it and apologize. So all of that leads me to the fifth step, which is the use of wise discernment. So really calling upon your inner wisdom to discern how to proceed. So sometimes that external feedback might not have any truth at all, and other times there might be an element of truth to what has been said, even if it has been delivered unfairly, hurtfully, unskillfully. And so it is an important opportunity for you to consider what has happened and to decide how to proceed. And that then leads me to the final step, which is responding with intention. So once you have wisely discerned, is there a kernel of truth here? If not, how, what do I want to do next? That aligns with my values. If so, how do I want to move forward in a way that aligns with my values? The sixth step is to respond in that intentional way. So as you know, there is no singular right way to respond to someone's criticism because the quote unquote right way for you in this moment with this person in this context really depends on your goals and your needs and your values and your preferences. So before you respond, you might consider, is there something you want to change as a result of the actions that you take or your communication with this person? Do you really want to prioritize your sense of self-respect or other values? How important is it for you to maintain a relationship with this person going forward? I think recognizing that self-advocating, asserting a boundary, ignoring, ending, or shifting relationships, blocking people from contact with you, those are all valid options that might make more or less sense depending on the specific nuances of the situation. And so really being mindful of any judgment you have about potential choices as quote wrong, inappropriate, unfair is also really important because it's important for you to tune into what you actually need and have your intentional steps be driven by those needs rather than your judgments. If through your discernment process you identify that some kind of invalidation or criticism actually does have a kernel of truth or validity, it's also really important to facilitate your recovery 
from that feedback, even if true in some way, shape, or form, by approaching yourself with self-compassion, trying your best to not feed judgmental self-statements, recognizing that you are a human being that is imperfect, you are doing your best, and perhaps there are ways you can also try harder in other ways or things that you can work on, but that there is a broader context here that has contributed to your actions. So you might also consider as part of your repair process or work, what might you want to change in your life? Are there certain thinking patterns, ways of responding to certain relationship dynamics that you want to shift in going forward that got highlighted by this event? And this might be implicit in what I just said, but I think it's also important both to yourself and perhaps to the other person to acknowledge when your responses didn't really fit the situation or weren't quite in proportion to what happened. I think that acknowledgement can be a really powerful piece of ownership and repair. And also something that we talked about earlier was being willing to admit that it hurts to be invalidated or criticized by others even if they are right. I think another piece that can be really powerful is getting support. So being able to share some of these hurtful experiences of criticism with loved ones and really being mindful of how you do that. I think it can be really tempting to approach a debrief about something hurtful in more of a vein of gossip. And the problem with that is that we can vent without expressing our true feelings or we stay so stuck in negative judgments about ourselves or the person who caused us harm that the hurt is actually more likely to hang on rather than move through us. So really trying to identify what you need before you reach out so that you can maximize the chances that your underlying needs will get met and really trying to express true vulnerability when you get support rather than, oh, this person was such a jerk. This is what they said to me. Those might be valid thoughts that you have, but when you stay at that level, you're not getting the full depth of support that you really need and deserve. Another piece of responding with intention is really choosing what you believe. So even if someone's feedback is quote unquote correct or right, you don't necessarily have to buy into how they framed it or their narrative or story about you, nor do you have to necessarily defend yourself to this other person. So you can reject someone's interpretations and assumptions about you without necessarily directly engaging with them. It can just be something that you do internally on your own. So really just recognizing that you have the power to choose what you believe about yourself, how you talk about yourself, and what beliefs you allow to guide your decisions and actions. So just not allowing other people to write your story and write your perceptions of yourself. And then finally, part of responding with intention is continuing to nourish your nervous system. So as I've been saying, that's really important at the outset of being on the receiving end of criticism and invalidation and invalidation, but it's also important to do throughout all of these six steps because of the nature of what it is like as an HSP to be on the receiving end of criticism. 
So in summary today, we've covered a lot of ground about research on high sensitivity and what high sensitivity is. We've talked about how cultural values, families of origin, life experiences, interactions with other people really shape our perception of high sensitivity throughout our lifespans. We've talked about how internalization of judgment is one of the biggest enemies of high sensitivity and some concrete ways that we can work together collectively and individually towards a reframe, a reconceptualization of high sensitivity. And finally, we've shared some tips about recovering from criticism and invalidation as an HSP. So I so thank you for joining me today. I hope you found this helpful. As always, I would love your feedback and I really look forward to you joining me next time. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave a review. And if you'd like to reach out or connect more, I would love to hear from you. So please check out my website or follow me on Instagram. To find me on Instagram, you can search for Dr. Foynes, that is D-R-F-O-Y-N-E-S. And to learn more about me and connect via my website, you can visit melissafoynes.com. That is M-E-L-I-S-S-A-F-O-Y-N-E-S.com. Thank you so much for carving out the time to join me this week, and I look forward to having you join next time.